welcome to Tea, Toast, and Trivia. Thank you for listening in. I am your host, Rebecca Budd, and I am looking forward to sharing this moment with you. Today, I am heading over to Mudge Island, located within the scenic Gulf Islands between Vancouver Island and Gabriola Island. I am delighted and thrilled to meet up with Marcel Bloch, ceramist, to discuss the wood-fired ceramic tradition. Marcel is a remarkable artist. Her pottery and sculptures sit in private collections around the world. Her artwork encompasses stoneware, raku, and local wild terracotta. Marcel forms clay into extraordinary artworks, from functional to sculptural, wearable to oracle. She imbues each piece with a primal reverence toward the natural world. I invite you to put the kettle on and add to this exciting conversation on tea, toast, and trivia. Welcome, Marcel. I have been looking forward to this discussion. I'm very happy to be here with you, Rebecca, and it's across the Salish Sea. Anyone who lives on an island has a special kind of lifestyle. We who are on the mainland say, oh, I would love to go to the island. And here you are, Mudge Island. How did you discover Mudge Island? Well, I guess it all kind of happened naturally. I was in Nanaimo going to art school at Malaspina University. I always knew that I wouldn't be planting my feet in an urban environment. Before I became an adult, I probably always thought I'd be going back to the prairies where I grew up as a child. And so it just happened kind of naturally. I mean, it was just an itch I needed to get out of the city. And I just went looking and one opportunity connected to another. And I was able to have enough wit and wherewithal to get a great piece of property, one acre, and had the opportunity to buy it. Family friend carried the loan when I was 21. I was really lucky and privileged in that way because I thought that that goal would take up a big part of my life, you know, just getting out of the city. But it was pretty much immediate after art school. I was in Nanaimo apprenticing for a master potter kiln builder on Gabriola, Graham Sheehan. I don't know if you know the geography. So there's Nanaimo that's on the east side of Vancouver Island. And then uh, the ferry from Nanaimo goes to Gabriola. And then Mudge is sort of down the channel a little bit in between there, accessible to Nanaimo and Gabriola. The apprenticeship at that time was the most important thing in my life. There was no way that I could go far from there. And land was cheap here because there was some electricity relatively off-grid. Many roads didn't have electricity. There was nobody around, pretty much untouched forest. And my partner at the time and I were fine with basically going into the woods and starting from the ground. In fact, in a couple of days, I'm celebrating 25 years since we spent our first night, we didn't even pitch a tent the first night. We slept on the ground. We were exhausted from moving all of our things over by hand in a boat. That just started really early, and it's now taken up most of my life, and I have never regretted buying property and coming here. 
I also have to say, as respectfully as an uninvited guest on unceded Sinema territory. That's beautifully said. We want to be part of nature, and sometimes it is very difficult to get out of that urban setting, and we go for vacations. But there's always a longing to go where our heart is, and that is nature, and you were able to do it at a very young age. So well done. And you took a risk. This was not easy. We basically carved a life in the woods alongside the other life that's around here in cooperation with it. And I consider myself somewhat of a, of a steward here, like a humble steward, asking permission for every berry that I pick, every stick that I take. I feel privileged. Well, I feel privileged to visit you, even virtually. I'm honored to be your guest. Thank you, Rebecca. Listeners, what I see when I look into the screen and talk to Marcel is a beautiful pottery studio that just is filled with all of this art that is in process and is finished. When did you discover you wanted to be an artist? Well, I guess there's two parts to that question. There's artist as a lifelong creator, but then there's the decision knowing that you want to be an artist as an occupation. I suppose that I knew that I wanted to be an artist before I knew the word artist. When I was a child, I called it make and do. Probably didn't know the word art. I just always made things. I did art and functional craft all through my developing years. Artist as occupation. It might have seemed like a dreamy goal worthy of pursuit, but I didn't know how it would sustain me or how I would go into that world. Well, it's a journey that takes one day at a time. It's a step-by-step, and looking forward is not the same thing as living in the moment. Yeah, and living in the moment is where it is and where it happens. It's almost like I don't know what else I would have done. I mean, I love the idea of veterinary sciences or even like a real art job, 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 like credentials, like an art therapist. I really learned a lot in art school, different things that we would have orientation career days where we could learn about different kinds of other occupations. I wonder with a lot of occupations, at what point they call themselves that. My grandfather was a farmer, but he started out as a ranch hand, rented farmland, and then later on he had his own land to grow on. But, I mean, everybody knows him as a farmer his whole life. It would have been one point where he would have called himself a farmer. When is that point? Is it when you decide to make a business card? Okay, I'm an artist now. I don't know when that happened. And the word artist comes with some kind of a stigma because it's the one occupation that is also used as a compliment where they say, oh, you're an artist. You could be a bad artist and you're still an artist. When somebody says to me, oh, oh, you really are an artist. I want to look at them and say, yeah, and you really are a legal secretary. It's not a compliment. The title of other occupations doesn't have like this complimentary stigma. Oh, and if somebody makes bad art, oh, they're not an artist. No, they are an artist. They just might make bad art, just like there's bad carpenters and bad plumbers out there. So I guess the short answer of that is I think that I knew that I wanted to be an artist 
before I knew what an artist was. And, and I don't know at what point I decided that that's what I am. It's what I was there for. It's the make and do that made the difference. It is the tactile draw. There's drawing and painting. Children are naturally attracted to art in the first place, but I had some kind of like wild excitement, fascination for it. Marcel, how did clay become your favorite medium for expression? What encouraged you to respond to this particular art form? For art in general and the introduction to clay, I have to credit my mother for that because she took me to art galleries all the time. It was always important to go to art galleries. And if there was anything creative that I was drawn to, she would supply me with the supplies, the books, the classes, and clay in particular. This is really early. It's amazing that I even remember this. For everyone, I want you to know that I'm speaking to the daughter of the great writer of the Amanda series, Darlene Foster. And Darlene was the one who introduced me to Marcel. I want you to know, Darlene, you are the best, and you're the best mother. And Frances, that's my mother, loves the Amanda series. The universe has brought us together as a serendipity type of event. So thank you, Darlene. She's going to love that. When I was really young, like four or five years old, she worked at an art gallery in the town we lived in, Medicine Hat. They must have had a studio there because they had workshops, probably had resident artists. I always loved um, Play-Doh and mud and sand castles and things like that. She brought home a lump of clay one day, and she has a memory. I mean, I know that I was excited about it, but she has a memory of me being visibly excited about it, like bananas over it. And we sat outside on the patio at the picnic table, and we made things. And I remember what I made. It was supposed to be a duck, but it looked kind of like a dinosaur. She molded a little bunny out of her lump of clay. And I was just so amazed. And for many years after that, that was my goal, that if I could make a rabbit that good. I've made it. I still have that little rabbit, by the way. I guess it's all very natural. The tactility, the, the getting dirty. And then in later years, when it was beyond just the material, I'm just drawn to utility. Of course, expression, the ability to make things that people can use. And if they're also pretty, like domestic art, I kind of do two things, right? I have a functional line, and but then I also do sculpture, and then sometimes they're kind of merged and refer back to the vessel. So I really wanted to say this, that clay runs deep in the veins of humans. We've been shaping mud into artificial stone for at least 30,000 years. I see it when I teach clay classes to small children. They require almost no teaching, like they're already familiar with the material. By the time I've handed out all the clay and I'm ready to start talking to them to give them a little project or something, they already know. If they're little, little kids that have never touched clay before, they're probably going to make a snake family. They don't just sit there looking at it. They grab it and their fingers get into it. I feel that close connection. I'm a very primitive person. I like to be as close to the earth as possible and self-sufficient and 
and the simplicity of all of that. I think over time that that is why I responded. It's hard to put it into words, but it's undeniable from very early, always something that was there all the time. My mom also enrolled me when I became like a preteen. She would enroll me in pottery classes at the local community center where they had a pottery room. And I would take those classes over and over and over. And then she had to talk to the teacher to see if I could please go into the adult classes. I couldn't keep taking the beginner's class over and over. After a while, I could just teach it. Actually, when I teach now, I'm using that information from those classes repeated over and over and over. It all just made sense more and more as I studied ceramic in the fine arts department at Malaspina. Then I met my, my teacher that I apprenticed for, the master potter and kiln builder, Graham. And all of that just kind of flowed together. Something that I thought was going to be a struggle to get through the door of. Again, I'm so blessed. And you were willing to follow the path. Clay is always been there to greet me. Like, I've never had to struggle to get to Clay. I have memories as a child of being on family holidays and little touristy towns, maybe field, you know, that little town field, Waterton Lakes. I'm not even sure where, but over the years as a child, whenever there was a potter at work, I would have only seen it live. You know, I didn't grow up with internet or computers or anything. They didn't have potters on TV. My mom would say, oh, there's a potter working at the back of this store. And she would take me back there. And just to see a potter doing their thing was like magic. The spinning, the vortex of the spinning and the lump into something Metaphorically, it's some form of alchemy, really. Mud into artificial stone. The magic of it pulsing through our veins. Humans were using a pottery wheel to make pottery about 300 years before we realized that we could put it on its side and use it as a cartwheel. Paleo historians don't understand why it took us so long to invent the cartwheel. <laughs> <laughs> That was about 6,000 years ago. So we've been making things out of clay, functional things, goddess deities, for at least 30,000 years, probably longer. It's just that 30,000 years is about the oldest piece that we have. It's a little Venus sculptures in Czechoslovakia. But about 6,000 years ago is when we were actually spinning on the wheel, using the wheel like a lathe for mud, horizontally. What I really like what's happening here, Marcel, is that you are allowing us to see your artistic journey as it unfolded and evolved. It started when you were young. It was fostered by your mother. You came into a place that offered you a mentor. There is a, a love that has to go into what you do. So when you pick up clay, when you touch clay, there is love. Oh, yes. I hear love songs. I think about me and ceramic. And with my big wood kiln, when people come around, when I'm firing people that haven't come around before, I say, meet my husband. 
this is who I slave for, feeding this beast. (laughs) (laughs) That takes me into a question that I wanted to ask. Could you tell me what wood-fired ceramic tradition is all about? Essentially, from the time that humans realized that they can make their artificial stone creation more durable than just drying them in the sun by heating them up in the fire slowly, it's the exact same principle how ceramics is made nowadays, using wood as fuel which is about the most primitive. Some people use gas, propane gas, diesel. There's various kinds of smoke firing. Electricity, though, is probably the most popular because it's easy. You can put it into a tight space and you just turn the dials until it reaches temperature and then you turn it off. The wood fire has a bori box, which is the fire box, and then it has a different compartment chamber where the pots are, and then it has a hole in the bottom, and then it goes up a chimney. The ashes from the wood blow through the throat arch into the chamber where the pots are and land on the pots and melt. That is one of the real beauties of wood fire. And some of the fuel that I use for some of my firings, not all of them because it has its drawbacks also, I use driftwood that I find on the beach. I don't mean the pretty driftwood with the rounded edges that would make a nice ornament. I don't take that off the beach. I look for cedar. I look for straights of cedar. There's just wood everywhere here. It's like litter from the mills and everything. And it's so weathered, but it's so salted. I collect that for some firings. And then what we get from the firing is a passive salt texture. Salt firing is a very European, German, traditional way of firing. Nowadays, when they do the salt firing, the salt mixes with everything else in the environment inside there and the surface of the clay and creates an orange peel-like texture. And the way that the Germans discovered it is that they would be burning old pickle barrels And the salt in the pickle barrels is what caused this incredible effect on the pottery. When they realized that that's what it was, they would then paint extra salt on the pieces of wood that they were using for fuel. Now what people do is they have little ports in the side of their kiln, sometimes on the top, and they put packets of salt into the kiln. They're very measured and scientific about it. I'm having like a passive salt effect from the sea salted driftwood. So I'm really picky when I go to the beach and get the wood and bring it home. I don't want any rain to touch it. I don't want it to sit out. I don't want anything to rinse any of that salt off. It has low BTU, so it takes a lot of wood. It comes up on the beach. It sits there for a while. It dries out. It goes back into the ocean. It comes back on the beach. I just think that it must be accumulating salt as it goes in and comes back. Definitely has this amazing effect. I saw the stack of wood you had. It is beautifully positioned underneath a canopy. There is no hint of any type of rain or dampness. Now, your kiln you made yourself. My mentor and I built it under his guidance. He engineered and designed it. 
and then we built it together. I can't even imagine building a kiln. Maybe what you could imagine is bringing 3,000 bricks over to a remote island by hand. They're nine pounds each. Some of those loads I rode in my rowboat, but that was a mistake. (laughs) We used a motorboat, but we had to do it all by hand. You can't fit very many bricks into the bottom of a boat. They're very, very heavy. I had stacks of bricks on the beach on Gabriola for weeks and weeks and weeks while we brought a few loads home every day. I think nowadays we'd put it onto a big flat deck truck, rent a barge, drive it to the site, and then they would lift it off with some kind of machine and then it would be there. But no, that's not what we were doing. We didn't have any resources of any kind. In fact, all of those bricks came from kilns that I had been invited to dismantle. So I mantled the kiln, cleaning off all the mortar with a chisel, renting a truck to get those bricks to the beach on Gabriola where we could then bring them over to mud. And I remember thinking to myself, someday I'm going to forget all this sweat and it's going to feel like I got it for free or something. What listeners may not know is that there's no transportation other than by boat to Mudge Island. There's no bridge. You have to bring over anything to the island by boat. And that's usually a personal boat. You don't have even a ferry that goes there. Nope. There is one man who does a water taxi. You have to book him way in advance. Or sometimes when I'm bringing special guests over, like maybe if you guys came over, I will just treat them to the water taxi. But you took a boat back and forth with 3,000 bricks. The strain on the body and the pain of the muscles. Everything I did back then caused me pain of muscles. Although I've developed some muscles, so things aren't quite as difficult because I'm so strong nowadays. And I work smarter, too. How much do those bricks weigh a piece? They're nine pounds each. So I'm trying to calculate how many times 3,000 would take you. That I can't remember. I say weeks and weeks. I would think so. I'm looking at a calculator. It would be weeks and weeks. I remember back then somebody asking me, aren't you afraid that somebody's going to come and steal some of your bricks at night when they're sitting there? And all I could think was, well, that would be less for me to bring over. (laughs) (laughs) Because when you build a kiln out of salvaged brick, you have to have way more than you need. When you clean them off and stack them up and get them ready for building, you have a stack of the best bricks, the ones that have all their corners, and then you have your pile of inferior bricks, and then you have a pile of incomplete bricks for when you need to chisel out a half brick or something. And so you have to start out with a lot more bricks than you need. And it's always great to have lots of bricks around. I mean, I still have stacks of bricks. I'm going to make them into a floor in my kiln shed and pathways. Bricks are like that. You can just make a pathway, and then 20 years later, when it's all covered in grass, you can dig them up again and build them into something else. When you build a kiln, do you use mortar to bring it together, or you just stack them? I'm not certain how that works. We do use mortar. It is stacked, and then every few courses, we put a layer of mortar to make sure that it's level, and then... When we're finished building it, we take mortar and call it pointing. We put it into the 
cracks and everything. And on the inside, we do that. And it's not a mortar that dries. It's not like chimney mortar because we're reaching extreme temperatures. The regular chimney mortar or tile set or whatever, that, that stuff would explode. It's not refractory. Refractory means that it can handle really high temperatures, like up to 1,300 degrees Celsius, like inferno, yellow heat. So the mortar is actually just a refractory clay mixed with sand. That's why we have to have a kiln shed. Rain coming on your kiln would wash the mortar away. So the reason that we use mortar at all is when we're building it to keep the layers level and then also to make it airtight. Before every firing, I'm putting a little bit more mortar here and there. And during the firing, if there's any bit of yellow heat coming through that we can see from the inside, we clam it up. It's called clamming. I always have a bucket of mortar handy. If you're wondering, well, with the high heat and the expansion and contraction, what is really holding it together so that it doesn't actually fall apart is that there is angled metal on the corners around the kiln with ready rod bolting it together. There's steel on the corners that are connected and pulling it all together for structure. Where do you get your clay? You said there was uh, clay on Mudge Island? Mm-hmm. There's a pond down the road from me, and my friend with an excavator was digging out the pond to make it bigger and better. Anytime there's a pond on the island, there's usually clay underneath it. That's why it's a pond, because this whole island is made of sandstone. If there wasn't a little deposits of clay here and there, there would be no standing water anywhere. And... My friend with the excavator made like a pile of it for me at the end of my road. For certain projects, I use that clay. I started early in my career accepting big piles of stuff like institutions that had dried boxes of clay from 100 years ago that they didn't know what to do with. And uh, I would say, oh, I'll recycle it. I would take other potter's scraps at the university and I would take it home to recycle. And then I guess word just got around and discarded clay that nobody wanted, either scraps or dried boxes, would make their way to me. I actually took a picture of one of these big piles of Plainsman clay boxes and posted it on Instagram. And the Plainsman clay company got back to me and said, you know those orange labels? Those are from before 1967. I'm actually working with clay that was antique processed clay. I'll go to the store and buy porcelain if I need to, but I just always have mountains of clay. It's a lot of work to process it. You have to hammer it up and then soak it and then stir it and then dry it in plaster. And the clay that I get from the ground, I mean, that's even more. You have to dry it, soak it, and then you have to sieve it because you have to get the rocks and the grass and stuff out of it. And then you stir it up in a bucket and just let the water go down till it's like peanut butter and then you scoop it out, put it in a plaster container, and the plaster absorbs the water. And then when it's the right consistency, you flip it over, and then you wedge it up when it's nice and soft, and then you store it, you let it sit for a while. That's where I get my clay right now, and I always think that can't last forever, but like every time the pile gets a little bit lower, another pile comes. You know you have a mythology. That is what it's like. 
there's this theme in our conversation that I acknowledge this privilege and I realize that getting property at 21 and having it be a good piece of property, getting to work my dream job immediately out of college with a master potter for 10 years and then he helped me build my kiln, kind of a magical blessing. The opportunity to be able to do it for my life, I definitely acknowledge the blessings and the privilege. I hope it stays with me forever, that kind of luck in that way. This conversation has been pure magic, Marcel. I cannot believe that we have been talking for over two hours, and it feels like 20 minutes. Listeners, thank you for joining Marcel and me on Tea, Toast, and Trivia. You will be pleased to know that this is just part one of a part two conversation with Marcel. So stay tuned for part two, which will take you deeper into the journey of an artist working in the wood-fired ceramic tradition. A special thank you, Marcel, for sharing your insights, your journey, and your connection to nature through the medium of clay. Your continued awareness, respect, and reverence for your art and the medium in which you work inspires me. I know that you have encouraged listeners to recognize artistic endeavor is a calling and a responsibility. And listeners, I invite you to meet up with Marcel on her website, Mad Mudslinger, on Instagram, and on YouTube. Until next time we meet, dear friends, keep safe and be well.